2: He kōna i e nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nau mai, mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clark and Cannon tēnei and I'm delighted to be with you as I start in the role of producer and presenter of the show. This week we have two stories for you that illustrate both the diversity of scientific research and career pathways in science. Later on, we will enter the weird world of parasite life cycles. But first, Katie Gossett went along to the University of Canterbury STEM Careers Fair to find out about the ever-changing landscape of science and technology roles.
0: It's that big question you get asked when you're young and after a while you start to ask yourself, what do I want to be when I grow up?
3: I think I wanted to be an astronaut. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, A pilot. Probably make computer games.
1: Uh, Yeah, when I was a kid, I wanted to be any number of things. But I was always interested in science. And actually, I wanted to be a biochemist when I was really, really little. Build robots to go to Mars.
0: (laughs) Of course, we often change our ideas as we go along. But these days, some of what we might want to do doesn't even exist yet. And that's especially true when we enter the realm of science. Take Sarah Kissens, for example. She's the one who you just heard talking about wanting to be a biochemist when she was a little girl. And actually, she is a biochemist, but that's not all she is. Let's take a look at how her career has evolved.
1: I had a phenomenal science research teacher at middle school. And she really inspired me to go into science. So I did some science research in high school in plant biology, went on to get my undergraduate degree, so then went on to my PhD at Arizona State University, uh, working on a plant-based HIV vaccine, which you know led me right into uh, to coming to Canterbury to work on something completely different.
0: Wow, okay. This <laughs> back up, the, the plant-based HIV cure needs further mention, I think.
1: Yeah, so my research at Purdue University was focused on understanding basic plant biology. But what I really wanted to do was take my research and use it to help humanity and the planet. And so when I found out about Charlie Arts's plant-based vaccines program at Arizona State, that really, really intrigued me. And so I developed my PhD project, basically developing a virus-like particle for HIV, consisting of several proteins of HIV. And we're actually bioengineering plants to produce these virus-like particles and then doing animal trials with these vaccine candidates. And did it work? It worked in mice. So it was effective in eliciting antibodies, and, and those trials are still ongoing.
0: It's a big decision for Sarah to leave that work, but wooed by her love of lakes and mountains, she ends up coming to New Zealand for postdoctoral study.
1: started working on, on enzyme evolution in E. coli and looking at the production of high-value compounds in filamentous fungi, which has led, you know, directly and, and totally understandably, into uh, building spacecraft. So my research career has been a little bit all over the place. <laughs>
0: She's not kidding. So Sarah knows better than most what a lot of students are just beginning to find out, that a career in science can take a few twists and turns. And the starting point for many of them will be events like this. Hear that? We're at a University of Canterbury careers fair for students involved in STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering and maths. And that's the sound of hundreds of those students talking to exhibitors, getting information about what the future might hold. In the thick of it is Stephen Post. He's wearing two hats, not literally, but he's both a student at UC and an exhibitor, finishing up a degree in computer science while working as an engineering manager at the industrial technology firm Trimble New Zealand. Stephen got his first job straight from school and he's since worked in computer programming, finance and banking, condition monitoring on machinery. All those jobs have had one thing in common.
3: I like solving problems. That's my ultimate goal: solve problems. Programming and engineering is a way for me to solve more problems. I just have to get paid for it.
0: So tell me the first problem that you solved
3: when you were a little boy? We had a a little plug-in robot with batteries and and it stopped working, so I pulled it apart trying to fix it with my soldering iron. I didn't get very far, and uh, it was probably the first time I swore in front of my parents because I stood on the soldering iron. That was uh, quite an event. But the other areas that really taught me as a kid to solve problems was, was Lego. I spent a long time playing with Lego. In fact, I still do, and I encourage my young children to play with Lego. I will buy Lego any day of the week for the kids because it gives them the skills required to solve problems.
0: And it's those skills he's hoping to find at an event like this.
3: What we really look for when hiring people is their ability to learn. So when you've shown that you can do it by going and getting an engineering degree, or any degree for that matter, and then it's a matter of continuing to learn because the industry we're in changes every day. What we do today is not what we will do a year from now or ten years from now.
0: So some people would find that daunting.
3: Yes, most certainly. And as a manager, I do see that on a day-to-day basis where people struggle to adapt to the the ever-changing technology. It is hard. But it's also where I get the most enjoyment. I love the fact that every day is different.
0: The question is do students feel the same way? Are they up for that challenge? Well, they're certainly interested in finding out about their prospects. And among the crowds is Carl Moore, a first pro software student looking for an internship.
1: It's a pretty tough requirement,
0: so, gotta get in early. So you said it's a tough environment, in what way? Just so many people around? or oh, so many opportunities, so many applicants. You've just got to put yourself out everywhere. Do you- Worry at all that you'll start out in one thing, and that the industry will change or the technology will change so much that it will cease to be what you thought it was going to be.
1: Oh, I'm certainly talking. Technology is going to change. The software industry is always changing. You have got to keep up. If you don't learn any new skills in five years on the job, then your skill set
0: is going to be out of date. But that doesn't bother him. Uh, not at all. That's why I'm doing it. Um,
1: I love that I'll have to keep learning and we will keep things fresh.
0: Taking a break outside the fair, I find Meg Musson, a mechatronics student. She's also on the hunt for an internship, and she's prepared to be flexible. So I'm pretty open to anything like software or mechanical. So I was just seeing what companies have a mix of those. And if companies who like specialise in software are willing to take on like a mechatronics student who isn't the most knowledgeable in software, but have a lot of other things to offer. How receptive did you find them? Oh, really great. Everyone was really informative and happy to help. A fellow engineer, James Thompson, has come along to see who's hiring and what different companies might offer.
3: For example, they've got a suit in there and you put it on and you take photos on different camera angles and you can get clothes accurately sized by them over the internet instead of just buying them and saying, I'm a medium. I thought that was pretty cool and that's new emerging stuff.
0: And he likes the fact that his own career options will be diverse
3: Back in the day, you used to just have one job, but now everybody branches out and does lots of different things, and I think that's good, you know, your job becomes more interesting than just paying the rent.
0: So, speaking of branching out, what are some of these new opportunities – Well, science graduates who look to the future probably can't imagine themselves wheeling and dealing in stocks and shares. And yet Joseph Schneider, a custom integrated computer chip developer with the company Optiva, thinks otherwise. Optiva does just that, automated trading on the stock market.
3: Also known as high-frequency trading or low-latency trading. So we have sophisticated systems that, um, based on signals from the market, will trigger orders going into there, and we'll try to do so as quickly as possible in order to get those opportunities.
0: So, I mean, some would say I guess it's not a science-based career per se, but yet here you are here (laughs) at this event. Yes, uh, and that is because we are looking for people who are good at modelling, who are good with numbers, who've got the right kind of attitude, so it's not so much really about the experience or what they know, it's more about the potential. So the kinds of people who are really interested in modelling and
3: physics and data, those are the ones that tend to make very good traders or researchers at Optiver.
0: But if many of the possible careers revolve around new concepts, things that are still being created, there are others that are all about the resources that have always been here.
4: We're representing the regional sector river managers, so all 16 regional councils from Northland all the way down to Southland and all of the councils
0: in between. That's Rachel Masters.
4: We really wanted to reach out to the students and share with them the important work that river engineers do up and down the country. We've been finding that whenever we say to students, oh, do you know what a river engineer does? They're like, what? So it's really about kind of sharing with them that that's an opportunity for them and the work is really meaningful, does great work for the communities, for the climate and for the environment. So here to make a bit of noise really.
0: She's joined at her stand by Sean McCracken, an environment Canterbury engineer who's seen the practical business of flood management morph into a different kind of career, requiring a whole new set of skills.
3: There's been a big change over the last 20, 30 years of river management being a very utilities-focused function, you know, so purely about flood control. But now we're both moving to the expectations of our communities, of our mana whenua partners, of even the central government, in terms of a more holistic river management framework.
4: I don't think career pathways are as linear and as horizontal as they used to be, right? you kind of it's a bit jagged and you see an opportunity off to the left and you take it and that ends up opening a whole new door for you. I think there's some research that say that younger students coming through will have at least three times the roles that I would have had back in my day. You know, it's the left, the steps um, and those changes and just taking an opportunity when it presents itself
0: is quite different. It's a bit like a river,
4: in fact. You could yeah. say that, yes, great. And now, damn, I should have used that right at the beginning.
0: <laughs> and that brings us back to Dr. Sarah Kessens. No one gets the non-linear career path better than her. Remember, she's the plant biologist, who became a molecular biologist, a synthetic biologist, and then a biochemist, who's now developing spacecraft.
1: So one of the big things that I'm trying to do is basically create new opportunities for doing research in microgravity. So if we're going to have humans living on other planets, how do we feed them and fuel them and basically keep them alive? And one of the most exciting parts for me is getting to work with people from all sorts of different disciplines and to develop things that are, that are not things yet, to design entirely new sectors of industries is just, just incredible. She feels the
0: same about a newish university course that she's teaching, Product Design, which brings together principles of science, engineering, management and marketing. Because she believes that it's when different disciplines coincide that completely new concepts or industries are born.
1: You never know where that new innovation is going to come from. And so a lot of this innovation is sort of the serendipity of new connections. So the more our students can develop these new connections across different industries, the more opportunities they're going to have for both their their education and then their future careers.
0: And the students I speak to here seem like they're prepared for the unpredictable journey that a career in science might entail. I think that's great. I think the more you get exposed to things, the more you know... What's out there?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, we're all planning to be lifelong learners, aren't we? So, I mean, if you become a doctor, you're always, you've got to learn new stuff, or a teacher or anybody, you've got to keep learning.
2: Never a bad thing to learn new things, right?
3: I would love that.
2: That was senior producer Katie Gossett talking to some University of Canterbury STEM students, representatives from some science and technology companies from around New Zealand, and to Sarah Kessens, a biochemist, and lecturer at the university. Now this idea of a winding career path that science can bring you on really speaks to me. I trained as a biochemist in the National University of Ireland in Galway before moving into science communication, first in the university in Galway and then in Dunedin in the Otago Museum before landing this amazing job. Science is full of passionate researchers and interesting backstories as to how they developed that passion. Next up, the story of a researcher whose interest lies in a type of parasite. One that sets out to be eaten, not once, but twice. All to fulfill its goal of laying a million eggs.
5: Okay, so I got uh, these here that need to be processed. So this is the next microtube.
2: I catch up with Jeff in a lab in the zoology department at the University of Otago. The bench has an array of boxes full of carefully labelled small tubes, in which I can see clear liquid and and a bunch of tiny insects inside. There are also two microscopes set up, and and a notebook full of codes and numbers. He is obviously busy.
5: I'll take a small one because they're easier to flatten. And hopefully, hopefully it has cysts.
2: Jeff Doherty is from Canada. He's at the end stage of his PhD studying a type of insect parasite called hairworms, named after how they look in their final stage, like long strings of horsehair. Now, parasites often have interesting and intricate life cycles. And the life cycle of the hairworm is pretty complex.
5: So hairworms are basically a parasite with a pretty... I would say, unique lifestyle because they spend most of their life within an insect, uh, either an aquatic insect in their first host or a terrestrial insect in their second host. Hairworms, they lay up to millions of eggs. Each female can lay several million eggs. And then the larvae hatch, and they they, they can't really swim, so they fall to the stream bed. and Any insect or aquatic uh, invertebrate present, can ingest them. So the larvae, they have very specialized mouth parts. Once they are ingested by the, uh, the host, the first host, they can pierce through the abdominal wall of their host using these very specialized mouth parts. And then once they make their way through the wall into the body cavity, they create a cyst. So they excrete these liquids that surrounds them and becomes a, a, a durable cyst basically. And they can stay dormant for months, maybe years. We don't really know. And they can withstand temperatures up to minus 80. It's been tested. And they can survive and infect the next host, even after those temperatures.
2: That's incredible. So their plan is to get eaten. Like, that's, yep. part, of the, that's part of their life cycle.
5: Yeah, that's exactly it. So a lot of parasites have life cycles where they need trophic transmission, so they need to transmit to the next host by being eaten. So, in this case, they get eaten twice. They get eaten by the first host in the stream, then when the aquatic insects mature and die on land, they get eaten again by their terrestrial host. And then the larvae, they leave their cyst, and do the same thing. They pierce the abdominal wall, but this time in a terrestrial host, and that's when they start growing inside their host.
2: This little hairworm larva is essentially a tiny, tiny wiggly tube with a highly specialized mouthpart designed to burrow into the side of an
5: insect. So this this larva w- measures approximately 100 micrometers, so one-tenth of a millimeter, and it can grow to something 20, 30 centimeters in length. So it's a, it's a huge amount of growth for that tiny larva
2: and it does that growth inside the insect
5: yep it grows and grows and grows and some somehow it takes up the whole body cavity of the insect so it's kind of twirled around the the intestine that basically just becomes the whole space of the body cavity
2: and then the insect goes to the water and yep. then it comes out yep. of the insect yep. and then mates how long is it hanging out in the water? Is that literally just mate and die stage? Uh,
5: I think we don't know much, but it could be in order of weeks to months, I would say, depending on the species. So uh, I observed uh, females, they kind of of this species in particular, they kind of burrow into the sediment, and the males kind of just kind of wave around in the, in the flow of the stream. Uh, I guess they're waiting to try to grab onto another, another worm, because they, when they grab on, they kind of form a knot, it's called a mating knot or a gordian knot and that's uh, how they mate yeah
2: and then they produce eggs
5: yep so the female basically becomes a, a tube of eggs uh, she she empties her whole her whole self basically which is just eggs there's nothing more there's no digestive system there's no it's only eggs so sometimes some species they lay the whole egg string at once and this can be deposited onto a stick or a rock inside the stream. And, for example, this species of Gordius, they just lay little clumps of eggs at a time. And then the female is practically dead on one end, and it's still emptying out eggs on the other end. So it's a, it's a very weird <laughs> life cycle. <laughs>
2: Maybe you are starting to feel sorry for the poor land insect who had the misfortune of eating a smaller aquatic insect that had one of these cysts inside. But spare a thought for the hairworm.
5: It's very unlikely that an individual hairworm will actually complete their whole life cycle because they have to end up in one host and be eaten by the next host, survive the whole transition from water to land. And that's why females lay so many eggs in the streams. So millions and millions of eggs are sh- are released into the streams every year.
2: OK, because this complicated life cycle is yeah. kind of difficult to...
5: Yeah, so the odds are complete. low. Yeah, so that's why the female probably produces so many eggs so that so many can actually complete their whole life cycle and restart the whole thing again.
2: However the plight of the hairworm isn't what got Jeff into this research area. He is actually interested in a very specific aspect of the parasite life cycle. Did you always dream of studying parasites?
5: No, I I was actually doing uh, studies on insect pests back home in Quebec, uh, where I studied the effects of rising temperatures on how the pests impact their plant hosts. And during a graduate course, I came across this subject called host manipulation which really fascinated me and that's what drove me to finally end up here uh, in New Zealand.
2: So tell me about host manipulation then.
5: So the the whole goal is for the parasite to increase its likelihood of it completing its life cycle so if the parasite happens to be uh, in a system where the host needs to uh, be eaten by the next host it may manipulate certain aspects of the host biology to increase the odds of it being eaten. So a classic example is a trematode, I think, that insists within the legs of a tadpole at the base of the legs. So when the legs grow, they kind of grow deformed. It makes it very difficult for the the tadpole, which becomes a frog, to hop. And that increases its odds of being eaten by the bird, its natural predator. And the bird is the actual final host of that trematode, that small parasite. So it actually matures within the bird host and then it, it uh, sheds eggs through the feces of the bird and then the cycle continues.
2: That's amazing.
5: Yeah, so there are numerous examples across a wide range of different host uh, organisms where the something happens to the host that increases the odds it gets consumed or in this case that it changes environment. So it, it changes from... For example, the land to water.
2: Okay. Yeah. And so that's what really interested you about the hairworms, was how are these terrestrial insects being manipulated to go into the water to complete the hairworm life yes. cycle? Yes.
5: Yeah. So the initial goal here was to infect insects within, within the laboratory and study their behaviors afterwards. Uh, this has proven to be impossible until until we're still trying to do it, basically. Now we're doing, for my project, I'm doing more of a field-based approach. I placed traps during my last uh, field season to try to see whether they're being captured at certain areas or not. And that could explain if they're actually moving around towards the stream or if they're just moving kind of randomly, which maybe increases their chances of entering the stream. So hopefully this uh, study will kind of support one or the other.
2: Okay. So you suspect that having the parasite inside them is affecting their behavior in some way, but you're not sure whether it's just causing them to stumble around randomly
5: hmm.
2: or whether it's yep. triggering something in their brains that says, I must get into the water right now.
5: Yeah. Uh, previous studies have suggested that most likely there's probably an uh, increase in movement, in the erratic movement. And basically, if you're walking around more, you're more likely to approach a stream or to enter a stream. And maybe they're, they're not reacting to the water, because typically they would jump back if they were entering water as a defense reaction. But from what I've observed in infected individuals that I collected from the field, there seems to be no reaction towards water, no adverse reaction. They kind of just walk over it like, like nothing.
2: While well, his PhD research hasn't gone perfectly to plan... Jeff has been able to discover a lot of new information about this poorly studied hairworm life cycle, as well as investigating the impacts that the hairworm infection might be having on its hosts, and how the hosts sometimes defend themselves against the larvae. He tells me about an experiment he conducted to investigate what impact there might be on water-based host insects that have multiple cysts inside them.
5: So caddisfly is another aquatic insect. We know that harbor a lot of cysts on on average. And basically, we distributed them within three tanks and looked uh, basically which ones pupated more rapidly. So we took only the last instar or the last stage of the larval caddisfly and looked at which ones pupated first. So we stopped the experiment when roughly 50% had pupated and we saw that the ones that had pupated had more cysts on average than the ones that did not pupate It's a limited study, but it does suggest that maybe there's developmental processes being accelerated okay, with hosts having more cysts interesting, yeah, so that could suggest maybe in other groups if you have much more cysts, maybe it could affect your development because these each time a a larvae gets consumed, it has to penetrate the uh, abdominal wall of the host and end up somewhere inside the body cavity. So these are all separate attacks on the host immune system. So it's likely to have an impact if you're harboring dozens and dozens of cysts. Yeah.
2: yeah. If there is one thing we know about ecosystems, it is that they are complicated. This speeding up of caddisfly development could be another way that this parasite which already links across both land and water food webs, has yet wider impacts that other animals, in turn, might take advantage of.
5: For example, in this system, hairworms can increase the feeding of uh, fish. There there was a study done in Japan, and they found that fish use uh, the insects that go into the stream as their main food source during uh, peak activity in the summer.
2: Okay. So just as the hairworm has developed its life cycle to suit itself, there are other things within the ecosystem yep. that are now relying on that behavior of the insects, that yep. the hairworm is driving the terrestrial insects back into the stream and the fish are like...
5: Yep. Yes, please. It's actually an endangered species of Japanese trout, so they help maintain the, the, their population just because of the fact that in that area, the, the ins- infected insects are 20 times more likely to enter the water and it becomes a very important food source for that population.
2: Okay. Yeah.
5: There you go. one.
2: What Jeff is currently doing is carefully checking each of the tiny insects in the tube for the presence of cysts. These have come from his two subalpine sampling sites. The results will let him plot over a square meter of stream bed. What proportion of the insects contain cysts? And how many cysts they have inside them?
5: There's a cyst right in the middle. It kind of looks like a like a halo. That's the okay. cyst wall. And then you have this the larva inside.
2: Oh yeah. No, I see it. Yeah. Oh.
5: So you kind of see this stuff here. That's the the proboscis that can stick out.
2: Wow there are still a lot of tubes to go in what Jeff describes as his end-PhD stage data-collecting blitz. But even hours of microscope work hasn't dampened his interest in the question of host manipulation. He is already looking to the future and to the next crazy parasite life cycle he would like to explore.
5: And this one works with uh, ants. So it causes its ant host to walk up a stem of... A blade of grass twice per day and basically there's a parasite within the brain of the host of the ant which causes it to do that somehow and the next host is a sheep or another ungulate and it eats the blade of grass and then ingests the ant by accident and then the, it becomes a, a liver fluke it transforms into its adult stage so it's called the lancet liver fluke and it's a, it's a pretty cool system and I intend to try to actually look at the, how the neurons are activated during these different phases of manipulation. So it's another weird and complex life cycle.
2: It's just so crazy to me. It's yeah, just no. so crazy. <laughs> yeah.
5: There are so many weird life cycles, and they all have their little uh, uniqueness to them. Yeah. They're so highly specialized to their environment, and the environment just happens to be a, another animal.
2: To Jeff Doherty for taking some time out of his busy PhD schedule to talk to me. And that's it for this week. This episode was produced by Katie Gossett and me, Claire Kinkannon. Sound mixing was by Alex Harmer, Phil Benge, and William Saunders. Tim Watkin is the executive producer. I want to also give a massive thank you to the wonderful Alison Balance for generously sharing her wealth of knowledge and experience with me during the handover. Na mihi nui ki You can follow the Our Changing World podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find links and photos and all of the previous Our Changing World episodes on our webpage, rnz.co.nz hour Changing World. And you can also subscribe to the newsletter there, and if you want to keep in touch, we're on Facebook and Twitter at RNZ Science. And make sure you check out some of the other amazing podcasts made by RNZ, such as Black Sheep, the recent 2021 Voyager Awards winner for Best Episodic Podcast. It tells the stories of New Zealand's villains across history. Thanks for listening. I'm Claire Cannon and I'll be back next week. Kia pai to wiki.